Thus ends the reading, Revelation 12, verses 1 through 17. I'm going to be focusing primarily on verses 1 through 11. And any of our listeners, by means of sermon audio, if you've not read these verses, please go back and do so now. I'll be referring to some of them in the text or in the, in the sermon. The title of today's message, The Fall of Satan. You know, titling sermons is, uh, is a task in and of itself. It's hard to know exactly what to call some things. I mean, uh, you know, the, the chapter headings and the sections that we have in our versified Bibles were added many, many, many centuries after the Word of God was written. Uh, the books themselves have titles, but in terms of titling sermons, this could have been titled any number of different things. But I think it'll be obvious at least why I chose this title for this particular message as we go along. There was an article some years ago in the Denver Post about a woman who had a sheep ranch in southern Montana. And the story was about her having to do battle with coyotes who like to help themselves to her sheep from time to time. And in order to deal with that, she tried just about everything she knew to try. She tried putting up electric fences, odor sprays, scare coyotes, you know, instead of a scarecrow, a scare coyote. But nothing seemed to deter these animals from killing her sheep. She tried sleeping with the lambs during the summer months. She tried placing a battery-operated two-way radio near them. She tried corralling them at night and herding them by day. But the coyotes kept coming. And at one point, she lost over 50 of her sheep. Now, according to the article, she was eventually able to solve that problem. But one thing that she learned and learned well is that it is in the nature of a coyote to kill sheep, to destroy them, to swallow them up at all costs. I share that story because it is a fitting illustration of Satan's attitude toward Christ and his church. In Revelation chapter 12, John sees in his vision a powerful, almost overwhelming example of the goal and purpose of Satan. One that has been from the beginning to destroy and swallow up God's plan for humanity. Although the chapters of Revelation are numbered from 1 to 22, the events that unfold throughout these chapters are revealed, but not in sequential order. This is a key point in helping us understand and come to terms with the sometimes strange erratic imagery that we find in this book. One of the reasons it's hard for some people to understand is that it simply cannot be read in many of these chapters as if everything comes one thing right after the other in chronological sequence. Now, of course, there are other types of literature and books in the Bible, the histories, the First and Second Kings, Chronicles, for example, where you are giving, given sequential facts. Uh, this king died, his son uh, took his place, he was a good king, he was a bad king, this happened, that happened. So you can read that that way. But when we come to apocalyptic literature, which is panoramic and somewhat dreamlike, it, it's, it, you can't really read it that way and make sense of it. Now that doesn't mean it's any less true or infallible and errant. It's just a recognition that God uses different human means to communicate his truth and he expects a little bit of effort on our part to understand that. Now, in these verses 1 through 11, and I invite you to go back and read them again, let me just, let me just hit some of the high points here. 
Uh, there's this great sign in heaven. John sees a woman clothed with the sun and the, the moon under her feet and a crown of stars, 12 stars on her head. She's pregnant. She's having birth pangs. She's about to give birth. And then there's this great red dragon, seven heads, 10 horns on his heads, uh, on his seven heads. And his tail sweeps a third of the stars out of the heavens to the earth. And he stands ready to devour the child as soon as the woman gives birth. And she gives birth to a male child. Now notice he says in verse 5, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And he would be caught up to God in his throne. That right there is a pretty good indication of what he's talking about, isn't it? And who he's talking about. But then he says, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is nourished for 1260 days. Do the math, that comes to three and a half years. And then he talks about war in heaven, Michael and the archangels fighting against the dragon, the dragon defeated, and there's no longer any place for them and his demons in heaven, and the great dragon is thrown down to earth. In verse 10, he hears a loud voice saying, Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Verse 11, and they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives unto death. You know, uh, one of the problems that some Christians have in trying to understand the book of Revelation, in addition to what I just mentioned, is that, to put it euphemistically, they miss the forest for the trees. And what I mean is that some folks, largely under the pernicious influence of dispensationalism, they insist on trying to find literal contemporary application and meaning of every detail of the book. And notice I said application. So in other words, you, you, they read this and they say, okay, well, this must be what's happening right now in the Middle East or in, in the Soviet, former Soviet Union or, or in Europe or the European Union or whatever the case may be. Everything is contemporary. Nothing really has anything to do with the days John wrote this book from this standpoint. The book was simply not written to be read outside the context in which it was, re or maybe I should say, to be understood, okay? In these verses, there is presented to us in John's vision these three main characters, the woman clothed with the sun, the great dragon, and the male trial to whom the woman is giving birth. Now, let's see, we can fill in some blanks here using the Bible's own imagery and things we've already learned both here and in the earlier New Testament writings and in the Older Testament writings, the woman here symbolizes the church of God, especially those who were faithful to God and were longing for the Messiah to seek vengeance on their behalf. That shouldn't come as a surprise because God's people, Older New Testament church, are symbolized as a woman in many cases. I mean, we're all familiar with how the New Testament refers to the church of our Lord as the bride of Christ. And we've had many occasions to see how apostate evil Israel is compared to being an adulterous, unfaithful wife. But now in this case, it is a positive reference. The woman symbolizes the faithful remnant from Israel. And you notice she has 12 stars around her head thus symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel, and then also the 12 apostles of the New Testament who are the foundation of the new Israel. And the fact that she stands with the moon under her feet and that she's clothed with the sun indicates that the glory and dominion is 
of and for God's people. Let me say that again, because it, 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 it's hard to, to believe, I guess, in some sense. The fact that she stands with the moon under her feet and that she's clothed with the sun indicates the glory, the radiance, and the dominion of God's people. Now, I read that again because I suppose that to our eyes and ears, that seems somewhat far-fetched, doesn't it? I mean, as we look around both at ourselves and at our brothers and sisters in other churches, it seems rather hard to think of ourselves as being particularly glorious in God's eyes and certainly as having dominion over the world, really. And the fact is, if you run down a list of problems in the church today, worldliness, uh, materialism, dwindling numbers or explosive numbers for the wrong reasons, false doctrine, laziness, carelessness, backbiting, disputes, it seems to be all around us. And many of our friends and neighbors, honestly, co-workers, they don't think the church has anything particularly relevant to them to say and their problems. But however those things may be, the fact is, when we think like that, we're not thinking of the church from God's perspective. And let me just tell you, this is one of the other main planks of this chapter. Not just the the fall of Satan, but that we are seeing these things, several things, from God's perspective. God not only sees our weaknesses, but he also sees what we can and will be. And what the Lord wants us to understand is this. The church will not only be glorious, or that during times of great renewal and reformation is glorious, but that the church is essentially glorious, glorious in her very essence as the elect people of God. Now, the woman in this vision is pregnant, as we heard, and she is in labor, and she's giving birth to a male child. This is all symbolic language referring to, to the faithful remnant of Jews in Israel who suffered long and hard in their fervent hope of the coming of their vindication and of the Messiah. The male child is the Lord Jesus Christ. He was born, figuratively speaking, out of the faithful remnant from among the Israelites. And with these verses in front of us, we can better understand something that God told the world, told humanity at the very beginning of human history. Following the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, the Lord promised even then that a Messiah, a Redeemer, would come and set the world to right. You remember Genesis 3.15? I'm reading it from the NIV. And this is the Lord speaking to the serpent, who is Satan, and to Adam and Eve. He says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring, Satan, and hers. He... That is, her offspring will crush your head. You will strike his heel. Now, let me just add parenthetically, there's a big difference in being struck on your heel and having your head crushed. Who do you think wins this battle? It was told at the very beginning. The child of the woman in Revelation 12 is the same offspring as promised in Genesis 3.15. He is the one who rules the nations with an iron scepter. He is the Lord Christ. But as we see again, look at verse 3, there's someone else here in this account, reading from the New King James Version, And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. Now, in this case, 
We don't have to do a lot of speculating as to who and what that dragon represents. That's because John himself tells us in verse 8, excuse me, verse 9, that this dragon is the devil and Satan. And what's particularly noteworthy here is that this dragon is a combination figuratively and symbolically of all the four all four of the strange beasts that we read about in Daniel's vision several years ago when we went through that book. Do you remember those four beasts? They together had seven heads and ten horns. And they represented those evil world empires, those God's law-denying, Christ-hating empires of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Each of those empires, in turn, represented the various stages of Satan's efforts to dominate the world, to take over and establish a world order that followed his law and not the law of God Almighty. So, in reality, the great beast, the serpent, the devil, and all the other beasts represent only a partial image of the collective whole. And maybe at this point, this is a good place to be reminded that this book of Revelation is a book of theology and biblical imagery and not astronomy. That's another way of saying that some of these things are meant to be understood symbolically and not literally. Obviously, the earth could not withstand even one star falling on it, let alone a third of all the stars in the sky. No, what John is seeing is the fall of Satan and the rebellious angels who followed him in his revolt against God's authority. This is a vision of the casting of Satan and his demons out of heaven. Now notice what the dragon attempts to do here. He's waiting to kill the Messiah at his birth. Satan knew that with the birth of Christ, that would spell his doom. That would be the end of him. And he wanted to be there at the beginning to make sure it didn't happen, to prevent it. Now, if you know the gospel accounts of the birth of Jesus well, you know what the word of God tells us. How that upon the birth of Jesus, the wicked so-called king of the Jews, Herod, had all the baby boys under three years of age slaughtered in an effort to destroy the newborn Christ. Verse 12 of Revelation, excuse me, chapter 12 of Revelation, verse 6, tells us that the flight of those followers of Jesus left from among the Jews in Jerusalem. That's what this flight into the wilderness is all about. Now, again, the, the church is pictured here as a woman that is fleeing persecution and destruction. History records for us from the eyewitness accounts of the Roman siege and attack against Jerusalem that at the earliest stages, the Christians who were in Jerusalem at the time were able to flee the city. They, they were able to do that on the one hand because Christ Jesus warned them. Luke 21, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you know that the time of desolation is near. And he tells them, flee. When you see this happening, he's talking to the people who would be there in that generation to live through it. That's why he's warning them, you get out of there. And the historical accounts tell us that's exactly what happened. Josephus records that the Christians fled. There are other accounts uh, outside of Josephus that say that they left and went to, uh, I, I forgot if it was Joppa, someplace where they, uh, you can look it up, but they, they, they fled the city of Jerusalem. 
And this woman's retreat to the wilderness was given a literal fulfillment in the flight of the then church out of Jerusalem prior to A.D. 70. The assault by the Romans would take three and a half years. Now, there are a lot of complicated reasons why it took three and a half years for the Romans to finally break down the walls of the city and destroy the temple and burn the city to the ground. 1,260 days equals 3.5 years, what it says here in verse 6. And providentially, that would also be the length of time that the evil Caesar Nero of Rome would savagely persecute the church. All of this signifies the efforts of the devil to destroy the Christ and his church. In verses 7 through 9, John's vision swings back to the the casting of Satan out of heaven and the war in heaven that resulted in Satan's downfall. And the reference here to Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon could be understood in one of two ways, I think. Either Michael is simply a representation or a code name for the Lord Jesus himself, or it may be, in fact, the archangel Michael who carries on this warfare with Satan in the name of Christ. In either case, we see why the woman had to flee to the wilderness. She had to flee ultimately because of the devil. Now, according to biblical chronology, As I understand it, at least, the fall of Satan finally and definitively took place during the earthly ministry of Christ. Now, you think, some of you may know exactly when that happened. Others may say, well, I must have missed that. What chapter and verse is that? Well, I'm going to tell you. The culmination of Jesus' ministry in his resurrection and ascension into heaven, all of that put the final nails in the coffin of Satan in terms of his overall scheme. Think about it this way. Do you realize... In the Older Testament, we rarely read about demons or demonic activity or demon-possessed people. But when we come to the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, there are numerous cases of demons and demonism breaking out all over the place. And that's because of the presence of God's divine Son in Christ Jesus. He made the difference. Christ was actively taking the offensive against Satan on his own turf. Satan, for his part, was fighting back with all his might. And that's why, again, there's so much demonic activity seen in the New Testament. The Lord Jesus, like Michael in heaven here in verse 9, led his 12 apostles in a warfare against Satan, driving him from his position of power and pretended authority. This is a literal fulfillment of Christ's claim that the gates of hell will not be able to withstand the onslaught of the church which is the proper way to read those words, by the way. I told you I would give you chapter and verse where we hear and read about the fall of Satan. And this is in Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 20. We read how Satan took his place of power, uh, lost his place of power, excuse me, in heaven and fell down to earth. The occasion was Jesus having empowered 72 of his disciples to go out and proclaim the kingdom message and heal and uh, cast out demons and that sort of thing. And they come back to him. It says they return with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And what does he say to them? I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
and I'll paraphrase that in my own way and say rejoice that your names, that you were counted as citizens of the kingdom. So now what we're being shown in these verses then is how this, this cosmic struggle looks from the standpoint of God himself. This is the battle between Christ and Satan. And it's also the downfall of Satan. It's the struggle between true believers and the false ones. And the value in this for us today, in one application, is that we are given the true direction here of Christian history. Because if we're not able to see this as the Lord sees it, then our perspective becomes distorted, it becomes pessimistic. And to say it again, I've said it several times already, to quote Mark Rushdooney about his father, he told an interviewer, my father, R.J. Rushdooney, one of, I, I would say R.J. Rushdooney is one of the main pioneers of postmillennial positive eschatology in the 20th and 21st centuries. He said, my father was optimistic about the future, not because of what he saw in man, but because of what he saw in God. Another way of saying that, I think, is that he was able to understand what was unfolding from day one to the present age from God's perspective. Another thing that we need to consider in that way about how these things apply to us, and it is also something that when you see it or read about it from God's perspective, it it puts a a very clear light on things. This, This is a great temptation in our time, what I'm about to describe to you, and it's the temptation to moralize Christianity. Now, what I mean is to to see this struggle between good and evil as just in a broad sense, having nothing to do with biblical history, it's the good people versus the bad people in some broad way. Uh, it's, It's love versus hate. It's the wicked versus the good. Now, that may well be how anti Christian and non biblical religions see the world. But this is purely humanistic religion. You, know, you say, well, wait a minute. Is there something wrong with preferring goodness over evil and good over bad and love over hate? Well, no, in, in the biblical sense, there's certainly not. But that's the, pro- the problem is in our modern, and, and <laughs> let me qualify it. It's not just modern. This goes all the way back to the beginning. People want to define what love is, what hate is, what good is according to any and everything than how God defines it in his law word. And that is humanism. Christianity is hostile to moralistic religion, and this section of Revelation is designed to make a moralistic interpretation of Christianity impossible. You know, it's very easy, for example, for people to feel good and holy and self-righteous because that's a, a basic part of the sin nature we inherit. And it's easy to, quote, get religion by approving of what society says is love and honesty and fidelity and other virtues. You see how that works? Who does not believe in those things in some sense? So the non-Christian worldview and religions make it easy for a person to be, quote, moral. Now, I'm going to give you one of several examples here that this one just was... Uh, given to us in recent weeks. I think everybody here and everybody listening knows something about the poor, hapless NFL player who fell, uh, I think he actually technically died on the football field. They had to revive him twice. I'm not going to get into the speculations about what happened to him, but the point is, after they carted that guy off in an ambulance off the football field, 
all these NFL players knelt in a big circle in the middle of the field and began, quote, praying. And I'm sure there were many people in the stands who said they were doing the same thing. I I finally came across one sports commentator, not on the main networks, of course, who raised the question, who in the world are these people praying to? And I'll add to that, I, I would be willing to hazard a guess that the majority of these people who took the knee to, quote, pray for their fellow player hadn't darkened the doors of a church or read a Bible in probably most of their lives. Isn't everyone in favor of morality? I mean, shouldn't everyone be in favor of prayer? Well, what if you're praying to Satan? What if you're praying to some Hindu god? Should you be? See, you have to qualify these things. Yes, yes, everyone's in favor of some type of morality, but the question is, whose morality is it? The moral standards of the average American, and I'm not going to get off into whether this refers to the average citizen of the United Kingdom or any other English-speaking country. I can only speak about these United States. But the... But the moral standards of the average American is not the moral standard of the Bible. Is that a surprise to anyone in this room? Everyone is moralistic. Everyone supports a moral standard of some sort. You know, the old saying is there's honor among thieves. Supposedly, even thieves won't steal from each other. But you see, moralism is a religion of self-deceit and self-righteousness. And today especially among our political and social spokespeople and the woke classes, there are many who preach love and virtue. But you see, they proclaim a morality that is not grounded in the absolute law of God nor motivated by a life transformed by his Holy Spirit. All moralistic religion and all moralistic preaching and teaching encourage hypocrisy. This is from God's perspective. This is how God sees things in the lives of, I would say, a majority of people at this time. And there have been many other famous examples of this, to cite one more. How people think that they can devise their own standard of morality to deal with their guilt and their problems when they break their own standards of morality. I saw an interview some years ago with a well-known TV and movie personality She was on one of those talk shows, and she was being asked about another well-known, perhaps even better-known movie star and personality than herself. And she was asked, did you know this woman? And she said, oh, yes, yes, I certainly remember her quite well. And, you know, the the saying was, as, as she supposedly, this woman she was describing, was a devout Catholic, a devout Roman Catholic. And because of that... Um, there are so many Roman Catholic churches in Southern California because this woman had numerous extramarital affairs and every time she had one, she felt guilty and she would give money to the Catholic church to build another parish. See, moralism is a works religion, a works morality. Its goal is always the same, to enthrone man as his own God and Savior. It may have a facade of a form of Christianity, but moralism is always anti-Christian. Because, you see, friends, the only hope of men and nations is in Christ Jesus. As the psalmist reminds us in Psalm 127, except Yahweh, the Lord, build the house, they labor in vain 
that built it. Let us, by God's grace, build our lives and our homes on God's law word. That is the only sure foundation. Let us pray.